It really was several weeks ago when we were in the midst of Stephen's defense to the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 7. Today we return to it. Some of you maybe weren't even coming to the church when we were starting this, but um, I do have a chest cold. We'll try to make it all the way through. If I don't, we'll get to sing a song in between. We'll see what happens. In this three-part series from Acts 7, our general aim in a very long passage that reviews a lot of the history of the Old Testament was to pick up on sinful patterns, sinful patterns in the Old Testament. Stephen was showing these patterns to show that how Jesus was treated in the New Testament fits human nature, particularly the way Israel responded to their prophets in times of old. And that's a defense for Christianity to the Jews because Jesus was rejected and so why was Jesus treated this way? And the answer is, well, because this is the way that God's prophets have always been treated poorly. Stephen, you may remember, was one of the seven, the wise, spirit-filled men who were chosen by the 12 apostles to assist in the ministry in that mega mother church in Jerusalem. Stephen was falsely accused by the unbelieving Jews when he was teaching in a synagogue of speaking against Moses, which would be a bad thing if you're a Jew to speak against Moses, speaking against the law, just as bad, and speaking against the temple. So he was dragged before the highest court of Judaism, the Sanhedrin, and told to answer the charges against him. Imagine if that were you. But Stephen was true, both to his Lord and to the things he was teaching. Jesus himself had made it very clear that the Jewish scriptures spoke of him. They spoke of Christ either by direct prophecies of his kingdom, or they did it by what are called types or patterns of truth and of behavior recurring in the Old Testament and fulfilled when Jesus arrived to some degree at his first coming and then finally at his second coming. Jesus said the Old Testament spoke about him. In Luke 24, 27, it says, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to his disciples the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. The only scriptures that were around When he said that, were the Old Testament scriptures. So clearly there's much to see of Christ in the Old Testament by prophecy or by type. And much, therefore, that Stephen could have used as a defense that are not even in this speech. But there's a lot in this speech. And so we're going to return to it today. It's Acts chapter 7, and it's uh, verses 1 through 53. We're going to start reading from verse 38, roughly where we left off, into the end. So Acts 7, 38 through 53. This is the one, Moses, who is in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers, and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us, 
For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. Verse 41, at that time they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god of Ramtha, the images which you made to worship. I also will remove you beyond Babylon." Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to, which, to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. And having received it, in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joseph upon dispossessing, Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, and earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of a house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my repose? Was it not my hand which made all these things? You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not Keep it. Well, this is a tough, tough passage, tough ending. In Stephen's defense, he took the four things he was falsely accused of, and in a subtle outline, it's kind of hard to know where it breaks there, but there's a subtle outline, he basically turns them back around on all of his accusers and shows them from the Word of God, he's not the one that should be on trial. They are. We covered two of the four points In the past, first, Stephen's view of God and His glory, that was largely given in verses 2 through 16. And then second, Stephen's view of Moses, which kind of morphs into the law as well, and that's roughly in verses 17 to 37. Today we come to the third point, and that is Stephen's view of the law of Moses. That's in verses 38 to 43. And then lastly, his view of the tabernacle and the temple in verses 43 to 50. And then there's just this penetrating conclusion in verses 51 to 53. I hope we can get to that today. So third, the law. And remember, this is just a continuation of Stephen's view of Moses in the previous verses. Verses 38 through 43. Stephen not only spoke highly of Moses, so they were wrong about that, he clearly identifies Moses as the lawgiver. When you think Moses, you think what? Lawgiver. And as the lawgiver, please notice back in verse 37 for a moment, Moses predicted that there was going to be another prophet, another prophet who would be like him. 
Verse 37, we'll read it. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you, that's the nation of Israel, a prophet like me from your brethren. He'll rise up out of you and he'll be a prophet like me. So everyone knew Moses was the first great messenger for Israel, but he was not the what? He was not the last. The Israelites were never supposed to say in any of their generations, look, we have Moses. That, that's it. That's all that we need. We don't need any other prophet. Because Moses himself had said, God is going to raise up another, and he's like me, and you will have to give heed to his words. Well, Stephen had taught Jesus was that one great prophet. And Stephen was not the only one to bear testimony to Jesus. You know that. Who is the forerunner of our Lord Jesus Christ? A great man named who? John the Baptist. He made it clear when he was directly asked, are you that prophet? In John 1, 21, he said, I am not. And then he turned right around and he said, now go follow Jesus, he is. Jesus fed the 5,000. That's one of the few miracles that you can find in all four of the Gospels. He fed the 5,000 in the wilderness, and that was probably 5,000 men, so it was probably a crowd of 15,000. He multiplied the fish and the loaves, and the Jews, not even saved, but just looking at this thing outwardly, they said, surely this man is the prophet who's supposed to come into the world. I mean, who's going to do a bigger miracle than that? They said that in John 6.14. Likewise, Peter in Acts 3.22 quoted the same passage. The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. That's what Peter quoted from the Old Testament, and then he preached Jesus. So Moses had said someone else is coming, and Moses was to be trusted because Moses had received the law from God. God obviously trusted Moses with this law. He used Moses as the mediator of the old covenant. And when he said that, then obviously he was someone to be believed and trusted. The Sanhedrin should be trusting the words of Moses and realizing one was coming, at least to carefully consider Jesus might be that one. Look at verse 38. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers, and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Stephen calls the law received from God through Moses living oracles. So there was no doubting Moses' credentials. He, Moses was the one that was invited up on the mountain, not the rest of the Israelites. Moses was the one that got to commune with God and actually see the backside of God as he passed by in whatever, whatever way that God wanted to reveal that to him. Moses was the one who received the plates, the two stones of the, the law and brought them down off the mountain twice. Moses was the one that gave the law. Stephen was not against Moses. Christianity is not against Moses. Nor were the other Christians back then. But guess who actually was against Moses? The Israelites. Shocking, but true. That generation rejected Moses, rejected his law, rejected his leadership. Look at verse 39. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him. That's Moses. See, there's that pattern again. Rejecting the prophets of God. 
The Jews even back then were not obedient to God's spokespersons. They spoke against God's prophet Moses. In fact, it says they repudiated him. Where is that in the Old Testament? Numbers chapter 16, verse 3, it describes Moses being repudiated. It says, they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? As if Moses had done something wrong for following God's choice of him as a leader. There were always many Israelites who refused to follow God's chosen leaders, who could not accept the fact that God gets to choose and to call His own spokespersons. And God only blesses their leadership, not those who arrogantly think that they are on par with Him. That goes on today, by the way, too, when men are called to preach God's Word and other men are not called. Some of them rise up against the leaders that God chooses in order to push them out. And they may not say words quite as eloquently as this, but they basically mean words just as good as anybody else to stand up there and preach. This preaching idea, I tell you, for me, was not my idea. If you knew me back in the day, just talk to my mom. I was too shy to speak in public. And it's God that has to work on a man whom he chooses. But God defends the men that he chooses and the men that he gifts. In Psalm 105, 15, It says, do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. But the people of Israel did, even though they spoke for God. God gave the Israelites the law through Moses, and they spoke against the law. They spoke against Moses. Remember, it's the Israelites who did this. We're not talking about the pagans. The Israelites, that's what Stephen is saying, because he's before what amounts to the Supreme Court of Israel. And the Israelites also did not want to follow by faith. Instead, they wanted to go back to what we would call today the unbelieving world. But to them, it was Egypt, right? They wanted to go back to Egypt. Notice that. Their hearts turned back to Egypt. That is the insanity of unbelief. You just followed a man that parted the Red Sea and provided manna in the wilderness and quails were blown in so you could have meat to eat and other miracles like striking the rock and water comes out, and now you decided you want to go back to slavery? That is, that is insane. That's just like people today. They would prefer to live their life of sin and partying and selfishness and sensuality and burn in the fires of hell than to come and receive from Christ everlasting life. That's insane. Those are the people that lead our country. Commitment to sin, if you are committed to sin, it makes no sense. You're committing eternal suicide. In verse 40, it says the Israelites rebelled so much they turned to idol worship, right? One God doesn't work, you go to another. That's what they thought. Verse 40, look at it, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. He's up there on the mountain, we don't know what happened to him. How fickle and unfaithful people can be at the drop of a hat. They decide we're not following the leader anymore. Verse 41, at that time they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. And they're just like people today. They want to mold God the way they want God to be, not follow him the way he says he is. <clears throat> well, I don't worship a God who would send somebody to hell. Well, then you don't worship the true God. Because God already said there's a hell, and God already said 
with many, many warnings that there's eternal destruction in the outer darkness and, yes, a lake of fire. And it's all described in great detail. It's not a matter of interpretation. They mold a God they like. This is the God I like. Bow down before it. Yay, look at the God we have. People do the same today. It's not with metal. It's not with wood. It's with their false concepts of God, the idols of their heart. Of course, now this is referring to the golden calf episode in the wilderness. You remember that, right? Do you remember the story they gave to Moses when he came down and said, what have you done? He said, yeah, we just threw the gold in there and poof, this cow came out. (laughs) They turned to worship an image, in effect, smashing the law in pieces. And so Moses took took the stones and he smashed it in front of them to visibly illustrate what they had done. They broke the covenant with God. God told them, you worship no other gods and no image, and don't put me in any image either. Deuteronomy 4.19 talks about that. Beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, you will be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. People don't do that anymore in the modern world, do they? Oh, what do you think evolution is? The whole idea that all of life and everything came to us from what? Stars. Sophisticated. It's the same. It's the same thing. We give, we give credit to nature for giving us life, not the maker of nature. It's the same folly. Obviously, with all this rejection of God's law and rebellion in Israel's history, God brought his judgment upon a number of Israel's generations because, frankly, they deserved it. Look at verse 40. But God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. You want to worship the idols, God said? Then go ahead. And I will not be there for you, and I will not bless you, and I will not be your covering. You worship them and see what they do for you because they will lead to your destruction. It's the only way to learn a lesson sometimes, right? Parents, you know what I'm talking about. The kid wants to be a fool. The kid wants to be a fool. The kid wants to be a fool. How many times do you have to tell them don't do that? Finally, it's like, go ahead and go do it. Uh, And they come back like all hurt. That's what we're trying to tell you. I told you guys a story about when my, I was young. I wanted to get drunk. Mom had some vodka. I said, I'm going to drink the vodka. It's New Year's Eve. I'm going to get drunk. I've never been drunk before. So dad looks at mom. Mom looks at dad. And I said, let the kid be a fool. So I took a shot, nothing happened. I said, this is nothing. I took another shot, nothing. I took a third shot, and it was like a bomb went off. <laughs> I don't even remember what happened until the next day. And I felt it for days to come. Never drink this stuff again. God sometimes has to tell people, I'm going to turn you over to what it is you crave so you will learn it ain't that great. When God turns people over to their own folly, that is called judicial hardening. He hardens their hearts that he may bring judgment upon them. Judicial hardening is taught even among the Gentiles in Romans 1, 24 and 25. Because of idolatry, it said, God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity. By the way, false worship always leads to sensuality, love of money, and false behavior. So their bodies would be dishonored among themselves. Actually, that passage, it talks about homosexuality. Because they exchanged, listen, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worship and serve the creature, that is nature, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. God turns people over to the very evil they crave. He then lets the thing that they crave destroy them. It's worth pointing out that there are many preachers that have already said that is what God is doing in our society right now. 
What is happening in the United States of America? What's been happening for the last 40, 50 years? People crave the idols of free and unrestrained sex. We went through a sexual revolution as if people didn't know what sex was before the 60s. They didn't know how to do it, evidently, before the 60s. So you had to have a revolution. And what did that revolution bring us? Broken homes. Kids that don't have mom and dads. Diseases. A lot of cost to the economy and to our health system. Adultery, pornography, homosexuality, orgies, sex dolls. This is better than what God gave? God is turning the entire nation over to the very thing that they want. Now you can drink it all up. It's all over the internet. You worship pleasure, have it. You'll find out how empty it is, how lonely it is, how unsatisfying it is, that the whole society is foolish. There'll come a point in time when they won't let me say that anymore. This acceptance of sexual immorality as the norm has infected the minds of many of our nation's leaders. And I don't mean just politicians. The media is so powerful in this country. They advocate sin and they cry down righteousness. The liberal university professors, when I use the word liberal like that, I mean that liberal mindset that says we don't have God in our frame of reference. We're free from that. We don't have a biblical theistic worldview. Our view of the world is that we're animals that have evolved and now we take that and we move that into the way we live and we move that into politics. That whole mindset is counter-Christianity. And it's the university professors that are pumping this junk into people that are going there. They want to punish Christians for speaking up for righteousness and protect those who engage in the grossest, most unnatural things. And they act as if they have a right to morally lecture us. I should add those gross late-night comedians. None of you should be watching them. There's no longer any justification to watch any of that crud. And not on YouTube either. The joke is really on them, but it's not a joke. God turns over their minds to utter corruption leading to eternal damnation. The delusion, brothers and sisters, is only going to get worse. 2 Thessalonians 2, 10 and 11 tells us, in the end times, God himself will send a deluding influence over the world. Why? Because people had the truth, didn't love it, and so he turns them over to the lies they want to believe. Nobody will be able to think straight. Well, moving on in the passage, next Stephen offers more proof of their defection from Moses in verses 42 and 43. As it is written in the book of the prophets, it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it? O house of Israel, you also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the God of Rampha, the images which you made to worship. This is a quote from Amos chapter 5, 25 and 26, although Stephen, remember, he's from the Greek-speaking part of the church. So he quotes the Septuagint with slightly different names for the gods. Moloch was the false god of the Canaanites associated with child sacrifices. The star of the god of Rampha or Rephan was associated with the planet Saturn in the sky by the Egyptians. And yes, they worshipped those, those bodies in the heavens. 
Many of the gods of the pagan nations that surrounded Israel, they exalted the stars and the sun and the moon, the seasons and natural biological life, and they gave credit to the, to the nature, to the creation rather than the creator. And God was always saying to them, the reason why all of that is wrong is I made those things. Those are lesser things. I'm the great and the living God. You don't reduce me to something that I made and then say you're honoring me. That kind of worship doesn't work with God. Truly they worshipped, as it says in Romans 1, the creation rather than the creator, as those devoted to evolution today do as well, giving credit not to the maker, but giving credit to nature. How can the lesser create the greater? Even the whole idea is not even logical, isn't it? Always it takes the greater to create the lesser, not the other way around. There's not even sound thinking in our schools anymore. From ancient times to modern times, people have accumulated their gods of nature, and almost always one of those gods or many of those gods had to do with the sun, the moon, and the stars. The final response of God is also noted by Stephen, where he says, I also will remove you beyond Babylon. That means I'm taking you off the land. I gave you this land a promise so long as you would keep the covenant with me. You broke the covenant over and over and over again. I showed great patience with you. I wooed you with the prophets. You killed the prophets. I sent you more prophets. You killed more of those prophets. Now it's off the land for you, beyond Babylon. And that was right for God to do that. That's called justice. Now, why was Stephen recounting all of this rejection of the law by the Israelites? To show the Jews in his day that there's been a long line of ungodly and disobedient Israelites to God's prophets. It was not Stephen who was speaking against the law of Moses. It was the Jews of their day who claimed to love Moses who were repudiating the law. And even more, the greater one who came, Jesus They had no business sitting in judgment of a man like Stephen who loved the law of God when they didn't. Oh, what hypocrisy this scene just drips from. We think that our politicians and and our leaders are hypocritical, and they are, but we did not invent hypocrisy. The United States of America by no means invented hypocrisy. It's been in every nation. It was way back here with Israel, people who who commit greater sins condemning other people over and over for committing lesser sins, lecturing them morally as if somehow they're superior while they defend things that are even more vicious and wicked. It's disgusting, the hypocrisy. We have to look to ourselves and make sure we don't do that ourselves and be hypocrites. Well, the fourth and final part of his defense is the temple, and that includes the tabernacle in verses 44 to 50. In this final section, Stephen goes through a bit of the history of the temple so that everybody that's listening will understand when he comes to his conclusion, where did you get that from? And Stephen's speech communicated very clearly as the reaction at the end of this indicates they get so angry with him, they take him out to kill him. We're going to talk about that the next time we're in Acts. He communicated very directly and clearly, and they got the point. Well, to build up to this, Stephen presents four phases in the history of the temple. Four phases in the history of the temple. The first phase was the construction phase, when the tabernacle was in the wilderness. Look at verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. It was a heavenly pattern, you see. So God took that pattern and said, make it exactly like this. 
If you read in Exodus, you see the details of the collection of all the precious items, the, the cloths, the, the jewels, all of that, and they brought it together, a free will offering, and they made the tabernacle from that. And they did it according to a pattern that God showed Moses. They did it exactly like that, much like we said when we needed a building, and we asked all of you last couple of years, you know, what can you do? What can you give? And we gave. It was a free will offering. There was no coercion. You gave as you wanted to give. And now we're here because you gave. It was like that, but they made a tabernacle for God where God actually would dwell. Their building was designed according to divine specifications from a heavenly archetype. The tabernacle, you know, was a portable tent. It was to represent God's presence. So as they moved in the wilderness, they'd set the tent up, and there was God again, either by fire or by cloud. Then they would they'd take the tent down. They'd have to carry it exactly the right way, and they'd move it to a spot. They'd set it all back up, and then God would give a visible representation of his presence again. In Exodus 25, 8, God gives the command, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. God can't just be among sinful people. There had to be a special place where he would be that was marked off, which would be cleansed. And then God would come down because we're sinful and he's what? Holy. And so the tabernacle is there among the Israelites and God always wants to be among his people but there's always our sin that is keeping it from happening. That's the first phase. The second phase (coughs) was transporting the tabernacle through the wilderness eventually into the land of promise. Look at verse 45. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers. This is all mentioned in the book of Joshua and all of his military exploits, driving out all of the pagan nations that were greater than him, the stone walls of Jericho and all of that. There's a lot of history. He's just glossing right here. And then you go into the third stage, which is barely even mentioned by Stephen. It actually covers a long time in the Old Testament. It was when the tabernacle then rested in the land. Stephen just glosses this with a little phrase, until the time of David. You know what that is? That's about 400 years. And then came the fourth phase of the temple, and that is the transformation of the temple, the tabernacle into the temple. Look at verse 46. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. This is also mentioned by Solomon later in a prayer in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 17, where he, he said, Solomon said, Now it was in the heart of my father David to build a house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. Verse 47, but it was Solomon who got to build the house for him, right? Again, just a few words, but that entails large chunks, many chapters of the Old Testament. Several Old Testament chapters in 1 Kings detail the labor and the precision that went into making the temple with extraordinary beauty, by the way. God obviously was concerned not just with the functionality, the purity, the holiness of the tabernacle and the temple, but God was very concerned with its external beauty. Great amount of artistic work was done to make God's house attractive. In fact, he filled some with the Spirit so their skill would be exact in the arts. Isaiah 64, 11 calls it our holy and beautiful, or some translations have glorious house. Aesthetics are clearly important to our Lord. They should be important to the Lord's people as well. A lot of times we think too practically and we don't realize that it's very much God's will that we make this room beautiful, that we make our entrance to our church beautiful. And those of you that know more about that and you appreciate aesthetics and you have artistic ability, you should step forward and offer your skills. Things that are made beautiful, they honor God. No, God does not live in here. This is not a temple or a tabernacle of the Lord. This is just a worship center. But this place is where we gather to worship, right? This is the place where we think upon our God corporately. And so adding beauty to this place is very much God's will. 
We should not shy away from that. But all of that about the temple was recounted by Stephen very quickly, really just to bring them up to this point in verses 48 through 50. Look at verse 48. Where is the real abode of God? However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and earth is the footstool of my feet. Imagine that. You got a lazy boy at home? You stretch your feet out, clunk on that little thing. Well, when God wants to do that, not calling him lazy, that's not the analogy at all here. If he wants to put his hands behind there and put his, prop his feet up, there's the planet. It's nothing. Knock it aside if he wanted to. And that's probably speaking of God too small, right? Now that we know the size of the real universe that he couldn't really explain to us back in the day, where there's billions and billions of galaxies that have billions and billions of stars, right? And the idea that we're going to travel there is ludicrous, When you look at the size of it, heaven is my throne, earth the footstool of my feet. What kind of a house are you going to build for him? Imagine there being this giant that's 5,000 feet high and he's standing outside there and he wants to come in here and worship with us. He tries to live, he has to lift up the whole roof and then stand in here and we see his two giant feet and we can't even see the top where his head is. And God is so much bigger than that. How are you going to get a house and stick God in it? He who is a spirit in the first place, right? He who is the creator of the great expanse of the heavens that we see. That Isaiah says he stretched out the heavens like a curtain. He spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. That being, how are you going to fit them into a box, into a cube made with puny human hands? We make great structures and we say, who's got the tallest building in the world now, you know? Probably the United Arab Emirates, right? They got some building over there. Nothing. God has to come way down even to find the Tower of Babel. Remember that? What are they doing down there? Oh, no, no, no. We can't have that. Acts 17 echoes this truth. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Solomon acknowledged that when he made the temple. 1 Kings 8, 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. God is the most high. Isaiah 40, 15, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. Not nation, nations. They're regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. God does not live in this church. God does not live in any church building. I don't care if it's a crystal cathedral or whatever it is. God is not contained on a mountain. God is not under a tree. God is not in a temple. Yes, he may manifest himself, especially in those places at times. And so those places take on special significance, but he's not contained by them. Nothing contains an omnipresent being. Try to catch the wind. Can't do it. Well, after showing these patterns in the Old Testament, now Stephen, this dear, precious man of God, will lay his whole life on the line for the cause of Jesus Christ. And we want to look last at the conclusion, verses 51 to 53. These closing words are very strong. I I wish I had more in my voice to bring out everything that it deserves. Just look how he cuts this council of 70 men open with the truth. Just look how he exposes them. how he convicts them of great sin. There are four evils that Stephen indicts them of here at the end. 
Consider this the crescendo of a preacher. First, obstinate unbelief. Look at verse 51. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Please understand that Stephen did not have an army standing behind him to protect him. There was no police guard for him. He was all alone. They had all the power. He had none, okay? That's what makes these words special. Stiff-necked shows total stubbornness to the things of God. No matter how many opportunities, they just did what? They just stiffened their neck. I'm not going to do it. Not going to do it. Not going to listen. They refused to comply with the Savior who came into the world. Uncircumcised of heart and ear shows there's no faithfulness to God inside. The law never wanted external obedience like the, the rich young ruler, remember? I've never murdered anybody. I've never committed adultery. I've kept the law of God. No, you haven't kept it on the inside because you've hated people and you've lusted. And by the way, go sell all your possessions and come follow me, Jesus said to the rich young ruler. And he said, I can't do that, I have too much. Yeah, because you love the things. And by the way, that's one of the 10 commandments, thou shalt not covet. And you covet your belongings. The law was never about external obedience. It was about obedience from where? From where? The heart to love God on the inside. Deuteronomy, which is the law, chapter 10, verse 16. So it says, circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. You only say that to stubborn people. But they merely looked religious on the outside, nothing but treachery on the inside. Stephen knew that, and he preached this. The second thing that Stephen indicts them of is is resisting God's Holy Spirit. Notice it says, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. Who's the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He's in the world to woo men, to draw them in. How is it that people come to faith in Jesus? How is it that they go from not caring at all about God and all of a sudden their life gets turned around? And the answer isn't because they studied. The answer isn't because all of a sudden, you know, they found religion. It's because the Holy Spirit of God who can't be seen is working in the world. He's working in this room right now. And he tugs on hearts and he pulls people and he used truth that goes to the mind and he draws them to himself. The Holy Spirit wants people to choose to come and he's wooing them and drawing them. But people say, no, I don't want that. No, I don't want to have to listen to God. No, I don't want to have to listen to Jesus. I got my own plans for my life. That's resisting the Holy Spirit. They did it back then. Always doing that. The Holy Spirit uses the preaching of the Bible to break down the pride of men, to get them to confess the truth. Yes, I am a sinner. Yes, I am unworthy. No, there's nobody like Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit's working here today. He wants to draw you closer to God. He wants to get you past your excuses. Quit sitting there evaluating how I'm preaching this morning and start looking at yourself. What are you doing? What's going on in your heart? What happens when we say amen and you leave? Are you changed or not? Do you seek God or not? The Holy Spirit tries to pull you. I can yell till I'm blue. I can't actually yell. Holy Spirit's got to work on your heart. But unbelievers and stubborn believers, sometimes they resist the Holy Spirit. They pull back. A prayer in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 30 expresses this very thing. Many years you bore with Israel and warned them about your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. 
That is why those Jews did not respond to Jesus when he was there. And when the apostles came preaching again, giving them more opportunity and more opportunity, they just kept resisting the Holy Spirit. Jesus testified to this constant resistance of God's word in his day. He said to the Jews, see if this sounds similar to Stephen, or I should say Stephen sounds similar to Jesus. John 5, verses 45 and 46, Jesus said, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you, talking to the Jews, the one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have put your hope. For if you believed Moses, Jesus said, you would believe me. Because Moses wrote about me. If you believe the Old Testament, you will believe the New Testament because the Old Testament bears testimony to the New. Third, Stephen indicts them of imitating their evil ancestors. The last part of verse 41 and in the 51 into 52. You are doing just as your fathers did. Now, of course, these are great, 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 great grandfathers, right? Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Oh, boy. This is the wrong thing to say if you're trying to make friends. (laughs) They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. I can't see him not pointing a finger. This could not be more pointed. This is sharp as a razor. This is the bullseye of their sin. Stephen was indeed full of the Holy Spirit. No man on his own can speak valiantly like this in the face of enemies who have total power over his life. (coughs) If that man was not completely abandoned to Jesus Christ, if he was not completely abandoned to do the will of God, There's no way he could preach this in that circumstance and setting he was in. No way standing alone in the face of enemies. You know, we read the Bible and we judge people like, why didn't you just believe God more? Because we don't. You put yourself in his shoes with all of that, knowing your words are leading to your death today. He didn't soften any of it. We thought Martin Luther was bold before those that were accusing him of heresy back in the 16th century. These words are even more bold. Only the truth mattered to Stephen. He could say that his life mattered less. Isn't this amazing? He didn't care about his reputation. He didn't care about making friends with the world to try to win them to Christ. only cared about truth. And beloved, it is only the spirit of truth that can make a man speak this way. Jesus did the same. Jesus spoke the same way. Jesus spoke with the same boldness. He spoke to the same leaders in Israel. In Matthew 23, 31, he said, you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. And then last, Stephen indicts them of wasting their privilege. Verse 53, you who receive the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. 
That is what you call divine sonic boom. You just pretend to love God. You just feign your loyalty to Moses. You pretend to keep the law and honor the temple. You defile it every time you walk in there. You never kept the law. God communicated His holy law through angels, and you broke it. Truly, Stephen was walking the footsteps of his master, Jesus of Nazareth, who said to the Jews in the temple in John 7, 19, did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you, none of you carries it out. And people today say, you know, man's basically good. Jesus would not agree. With that decisive exclamation point, so to say, Christianity is defended by Stephen from the patterns of disobedience throughout Israel's history and against the rank hypocrisy of the Jews' position by a man, I think, we have to conclude was true through and through. We need men like Stephen today. Brothers, we need men like Stephen today. We need men who will not compromise with the world and think, you know, if I compromise, I can kind of fit in and I can have a little leverage and I can... We need men who are able to look evil in the face and call it what it is. And not just your pet little issues, but on the big issues that God talks about. We need men who call sin, sin today. Whether it's in your workplace, men where you lay everything on the line, lay your job on the line, lay your reputation on the line. Be known as a man who speaks the truth. Be bold, be strong, be courageous. God is behind you. You say, but pastor, it might result in something bad. It might, it might. But do you believe in a resurrected Messiah? Do you believe in a a God who raises the dead? Do you believe that Jehovah Jireh will provide you with another job if you lose that one? Do you believe that your friendliness and charm is going to win people to Christ? Or do you believe it's people bowing before the Word of God? I used to think I had charm. I remember trying to witness to people and be all like nice and everything with them. It didn't really do too well. People are stubborn and they resist the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying you have to be obnoxious. But you do have to be bold. And you do have to be direct. And you have to be willing to lay it all on the line. You have to believe that it's a matter of eternal death or eternal life. That's the kind of world we're in, brothers. That's the kind of world we're in, sisters. And we need to be bold and strong. Amen? Thank you for this man of God. Thank you that you moved Luke to write about his life. May we even be a fraction of this man. May you fill us with the Spirit and we not be full of the things of the world of greed and of sensuality. Lord, may we not get distracted by all of the political arguing, by all of the smaller issues that people get upset about in our neighborhoods, this cause and that cause. May we fix our eyes on the grand prize, defending Jesus Christ in a world of blasphemous and resistant sinners. May you draw, Lord, to this church and to our lives as we go out, people that will listen that we can help them see the blindness they're in, the darkness that they're in, I mean, and the blindness of their eyes. 
and we might sometimes gently and sometimes strongly testify to the truth of our Savior, for we love him, and we pray in his name. Amen.